0: It is Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams.
1: I'm Matthew Moore. Later this hour, why esports enthusiasts plan to be at the state capitol in Little Rock tomorrow. We'll start
0: with a discussion about some of the worst massacres to take place in the United States. Sunday afternoon, Hannibal Johnson will speak at the Fort Smith Museum of History about 20th century racial massacres in Arkansas and Oklahoma. He's a researcher and writer, as well as an attorney, who grew up in Fort Smith and now lives in Tulsa. His talk Sunday is Understanding Racial Massacres in Arkansas and Oklahoma, Elaine, Catcher, and Tulsa. Yesterday, I asked him about that word, Understanding.
2: Well, understanding these incidents really relates to coming to terms with the precipitating factors, the conditions that allowed these kinds of travesties to occur. And we know that this period was rife with such conditions. In fact, historians and sociologists often refer to the early part of the 20th century as the nadir of race relations in America. Nadir is just the fancy word for low point. And, and they use that phraseology because this was a period in which so-called race riots were rampant all throughout the United States. In fact, the summer and fall of 1919 was called by James Weldon Johnson of the NAACP Red Summer, red being a reference metaphorically to the blood that flowed in the streets In places like New York and Philadelphia and D.C. and Chicago and Elaine and Longview, Texas, Memphis, Tennessee, all this racial unrest and tumult in the the United States. And simultaneously, this was a period in which um, black folks really uh, were terrorized by lynching, by by mob and, and vigilantism that really threatened their their lives, their well-being, their property, et cetera. A good example of that is we think of the, the horrific Tulsa race massacre, which comes two years after the nineteen nineteen Red Summer. We also need to remember that there were almost three dozen lynchings in Oklahoma between Oklahoma statehood and nineteen oh seven in 1920, the year prior to the massacre here in Tulsa. So the conditions were such that it's not surprising that these horrific incidents occur. When we deny the humanity of, of anyone, we allow ourselves then to commit these atrocious acts against the other, because the other is denied
0: their humanity. We've only really, in in for for many people, only really recently learned of just the the extent of the atrocities in places like Tulsa and Elaine. And I'm wondering, you you just did a great job of spelling out, you know, that the there, what was going on in in the early 20th century. Are there particular sorts of um, uh, elements that, that led these mobs to have these massacres, especially in Tulsa and Elaine? I mean, was there—obviously, was there, there was hatred. Was there also fear of economic equity, things like that?
2: We have to remember that the prevailing ideology of this period was white supremacy— and I know that that's jarring for, for some people. Some people really don't want to talk about that, that concept. Um, but the reality is many people, if not most people in that era who were white, believed themselves to be superior to other folks, particularly other black folks. And some of those people also believed that black folks in particular were subhuman. And if, in your mind, you are superior to someone else, and if, as in the case of Tulsa, that category of those people who are someone else uh, is faring well economically, I use the phrase cognitive dissonance. There's a misalignment in your mind between what ought to be, in terms of the social pecking order, and what is, as measured by the reality on the ground. So violence, terrorism, is a one, is one way really of reestablishing what you believe to be the right state, the state of equilibrium in terms of, of the way society should be ordered. And that's certainly the case in Tulsa. This jealousy or cognitive dissonance played a big role in Tulsa. And to some extent, in other places like, like Catcher, according to, to, to many uh, historians, uh, landlust was a factor. That is, people believed that the land on which black folks settled could be used for higher and better purposes. It was actually in the wrong hands. So that, that was also a, a factor in Tulsa. And probably to, to some extent in all these incidents that we're talking about, the media are an important element of the picture. The media in Tulsa, particularly one outlet called the Tulsa Tribune, published a series of sensationalized news stories and really um, toxic news editorials that really fan the flames of racial discord um, in the white community against the black community. So we should always look at, at, at the role of the, the media and who who is, who is propagating and who is narrating these various stories and how that plays into the mix of how people actually behave.
0: You mentioned cognitive dissonance, but there's also... You know, fairly quickly after these massacres, an effort for erasure and so there was I would assume the knowledge that it's not just cognitive dissonance it's there's quite the awareness that these were horrible acts. Why else would you try to cover them up or erase them
2: right um, that this is where I think we we should have a pretty serious discussion about historical racial trauma and how it manifests over the years. Uh, in some cases, arguably in, in Tulsa, it manifested for several decades in this what we might loosely call conspiracy of silence. That is, no one was really talking about this history. People who had the capacity to to narrate the history for Future Generations, teachers, uh, writers, so forth, didn't do that. People in the community, in the black community and the white community, by and large, didn't really discuss it, probably for different reasons. In the black community, in talking with some of the survivors, most of whom are, are, are long gone, um, they talked about growing up in families where the elders didn't want to burden the children with these horrific tales from 1921. They wanted the children to, to, to grow up um, thinking about opportunities and possibilities, not thinking about obstacles. So they didn't really discuss this history. The white community, shame was a factor in terms of uh, keeping this under wraps, not really discussing it openly. Again, that went on for decades. Um, and that that's really part of historical racial trauma that we experience when these horrific events in our communities occur.
0: You are the author of the play Big Mama Speaks, a Tulsa race riot survivor story. And I'm wondering, as the playwright, the the weight of the responsibility you felt putting those words on paper.
2: Well, you know, part of the reason that I did a play it's it's, it's it's really a vignette it's a one woman um, one woman one act vignette is what it really is and it's a survivor of the massacre telling her story I believe the material the substantive material around this history is so important that we need to develop a multiplicity of, of ways to communicate it we know that people have different learning styles some are Um, verbal linguistics some are visual um, some are kinesthetic so so i want to open this history up to as many people as possible by communicating it in as many ways as possible so the play really touches people on an emotional visceral level and it shares the 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 history in a, a really um understandable, digestible, uh, colloquial way that should appeal to a a broad swath of the audience.
0: You are uh, a native of Fort Smith, correct?
2: Well, I I went to junior high and high school in Fort Smith. I went to Kevin's Junior High and Northside High School. I'm not a native in the sense that I wasn't born there. I was actually born in Clarksville never lived in Clarksville. Uh, When I was born, my family lived in Coal Hill, Arkansas. Do you know where that is?
0: I've been to Coal Hill. Indeed, I do.
2: And Coal Hill, which is a tiny town and there was no hospital there. All my siblings were born in Altus, but for I I still don't know the reason, but I was born in Clarksville.
0: All right. I'm I'm wondering, so, um, you know, you're in the state where Elaine and other massacres happened. You're not that far, whether it's Clarksville or Coral Hill or Fort Smith, from Tulsa. I'm wondering, when did you begin as a young person to learn about Elaine and Catcher and Tulsa?
2: Sadly, I didn't know any of this history until I was an adult. Um, Growing up in Fort Smith, 100 miles east of Tulsa, didn't know anything about Tulsa history. I came to Tulsa in the mid-1980s. I got really involved in the community. I came here to work for a law firm, but I got really involved in the community and organizations like the Urban League and so forth. I was asked to, to write a guest editorial column for the Oklahoma Eagle, uh, one of the black newspapers. I was asked to write a series about the Greenwood District history, the Greenwood District is this historical African-American community, Here in Tulsa, that's when I really began to learn about the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. And subsequently I learned about uh, Elaine, um, the Red Summer, so-called Red Summer riots, and other, again, so-called race riots that occurred in places like Atlanta in 1906, um, East St. Louis, 1917, Springfield, Illinois, 1908 that precipitated the formation of the NAACP and began to realize that that period was really rife with racial violence. I began to think about what it must have been like to have been an African-American during that period when it was almost open season on on African-Americans given the, the race riots in air quotes and lynching all over these united states and the the status of the criminal justice system sort of more generally so there was the there were these extrajudicial things going on like lynching and and race rights but then even in the, the the formal legal process the criminal justice system as it existed It was difficult, if not impossible, for most black folks to get a fair share. It's important that we know this history, though, as ugly as it is, I call it hard history, because if we're ever going to to reach a place of equity, a place of racial reconciliation, we have to revisit our past and find out what it is we were meant to learn from it.
0: It is so important for the very reasons you just mentioned. But we can't let it be the only thing, you know, in Black History Month that's discussed. Right? There's there's achievement, there's excellence, there's the present. So I'm not saying not talk about it at all. Obviously, we have to, but but just not make it the only uh, subject of, of of Black America we talk about.
2: Absolutely, and a great example is the. Is this, the Tulsa story, the Black Wall Street story? It's not. It's not just about the massacre in 1921. That that that's a bit of the story. It's like it's like a chapter in a book, but the book is really about the people who had incredible vision and built a community that became known nationwide as Black Wall Street. It's about those same people who nurtured that community and who resurrected the community after its destruction in 1921, brought it back to life bigger and better than ever, peaking in the 1940s. It's about all that. It's about tragedy, but it's also about triumph. February is Black History Month. I just wrote a, a, an editorial column for the Oklahoman, the Oklahoma City, Oklahoma City uh, mainstream newspaper. And in that piece that I wrote, I talked about Black History Month And I said, and it might seem ironic to some, if I had my way, there would be no Black History Month. And there would be no Black History Month because Black history, which is American history, would be properly integrated and infused into the history curriculum. And we wouldn't be setting aside one month to talk about this history. We'd be talking about it all the time as a part of our larger national narrative.
0: Hannibal B. Johnson is the author of Black Wall Street 100, An American City Grapples with Its Historical Racial Trauma. He'll speak at the Fort Smith Museum of History Sunday afternoon at 1.30. The event in conjunction with 646 downtown. Tickets are required. Seating is limited. More information at fortsmithmuseum.org.
1: This is Ozarks at Large, a bill that would ensure a minimum period of leave for high school students after giving birth has advanced in the Arkansas legislature. Members of the House Education Committee yesterday unanimously approved House Bill 1161, sponsored by Democratic Representative Ashley Hudson of Little Rock. Hudson said the goal is to help make it easier for students to graduate from high school while ensuring the best possible care for their child.
3: We know that outcomes are better for the parent and for the baby if if their parents are able to obtain their high school degree. certainly opens up a lot more opportunity for income, um, for getting jobs, and for furthering their education, um, which of course opens up a lot more opportunity for their child.
1: Under the bill, students would be guaranteed at least 10 days off from school after the birth of their child and be allowed to make up any work they missed during that time period. Schools would also be required to provide a space separate from existing restrooms for new mothers to pump and store breast milk. The bill now heads to the full House for a vote. Executives from Northwest Arkansas companies updated
0: business officials yesterday about their projects at the Northwest Arkansas Council's annual winter meeting, including... Tulsa-based venture capital firm Atento Capital. This past year, Atento launched 412 Angels, a network connecting investors with early-stage startups. Sterling Smith, managing director of the firm's Northwest Arkansas hub, says the region presents opportunities for investors to diversify portfolios, invest in startups, and form a stronger bond with Tulsa.
1: Um, specifically, with 412 Angels and Atento Capital, we're able to bring Investors who have been doing it for some time and the early stage investors who have been investing for some time to the region and through our network, you know, effectively shrink the distance between the two regions and provide like a metropolis, almost like San Antonio and Austin or Dallas and Fort Worth. I think it's a natural partnership.
0: Also, construction on Walmart's headquarters continues and is on schedule for completion. Tyson is working to consolidate its headquarters and create programs for moving families. These include a mortgage rate assistance plan and a U of A waiver program to have incoming families with college-aid children classified as residents, making them eligible for in-state tuition.
1: J.B. Hunt bought an $18 million business park near Lowell, and it will convert 39 acres in Benton County to a solar field. The field is expected to provide 70% of its corporate campus power. Simmons Foods is also consolidating its corporate offices and is focusing on workforce needs such as childcare.
4: Have you ever wondered about the history of black people in this bubble we call Northwest Arkansas? Have you wondered about the current state of the black community in Northwest Arkansas? Have you wondered about what is being done about the black community in Northwest Arkansas? Well, hello. I am Karee Banton, director of African and African-American studies at the University of Arkansas and host of the podcast On Discipline. And in celebration of Black History Month, On Undisciplined will be hosting a live podcast recording on Black Erasure in Northwest Arkansas at the Squire Jehagan Outreach Center on Willow Street on Thursday, February 9th at 6 p.m. The panel will include Sharon Killian, president of the Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage Association, Tommy Davis, longtime resident and a descendant of the Northwest Arkansas Historic Black Community, Chris Seawood, a member of the Northwest Arkansas MLK Council, who will be given an update on the state of Black Northwest Arkansas census an architecture professor in Guzzi Brown, an expert on historic preservation in Black communities. For more information, please head on over to KUAF.com slash live podcast.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. If you know League of Legends, Valorant, or Super Smash Brothers, you know esports. Esports, competitive video gaming, is growing professionally and on high school and college campuses. There are national competitions and scholarships available for esports players. Tomorrow at the state capitol in Little Rock, advocates of esports will be touting their benefits, including Dr. John Price, the esports manager at The Ohio State University. He started the first collegiate esports program in Arkansas while he was at Henderson State in Arkadelphia. He says one of the best ways to describe esports is to imagine you're playing
5: chess. And that on the other side of the screen, somewhere in the world, there's another person you're playing chess against. And essentially, esports it it is that it's the playing against other people in different video games, whether that be something as traditional and well known as chess, to something that's a little bit more exotic like Rocket League or League of Legends, uh, et cetera. And really, what it is, it's just competitive, uh, just competitive events using video games as the media, much
0: like a football, but played essentially in a digital. Uh, online universe. You mentioned one there just a second ago, um, and I've already forgotten the name, Rocket something? Rocket League, yes. yeah. Uh, it, it's
5: a it, it's a great one. Uh, it's very popular in high schools and middle schools. It's essentially, think soccer with rocket-powered cars. Traditionally, it's a team of three, a ver- uh, 3v3 match. And uh, in that game, it's as simple as getting the ball into the goal, just like in traditional soccer. There are a couple of other added mechanics as you as you might imagine with a rocket powered car in a soccer stadium but uh, you have a lot of the same elements you would see on the field communication lots of teamwork plays even that are drawn up in practice beforehand uh, and so it's funny enough a lot of the simple the practices that these students and such or players are engaging in are very similar at least in the sense structurally as you might have in traditional athletics.
0: Before you were in Columbus, Ohio, you were in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, correct?
5: I was, yeah. I was the uh, I was a professor of communications and the esports director at uh, Henderson State University.
0: And was that the first esports sort of formal uh, collegiate team in Arkansas?
5: It was, yeah. The first one that not only uh, had its own facility budget. Uh, but we also had scholarships. We were the, one of the, I believe, the first one in the entire state to offer scholarships to students to come play eSports at Henderson State.
0: What would you say to people who are unsure about eSports and, and maybe somewhere on the, the spectrum between uncomfortable and just naive? Mm-hmm.
5: I would say at the end of the day, um, what it's doing for these students. And this is something that I found not only at a collegiate level, uh, but also at a high school and uh middle school level is that it's providing an environment where students are able to come together in a uh, an activity they already have interest in but beforehand oftentimes wasn't something that was really thought of right and and even your question kind of speaks to that is that it's still something you really uh don't consider uh the the different elements and there's entire student populations that exist on these different educational levels of where they don't normally play uh or uh, interact in other after-school activities. That's one of the interesting things about it of where uh, there's been a few different studies that have come out that range anywhere between 60 to 40% of the students that are participating in these programs are students that otherwise were not competing or being a part of any after-school program. And so I think one of the biggest reasons it's important and while we're seeing these pop up all across the country in every kind of level of education is that it it appeals to an audience that before was not engaged in uh, the greater community that happens in schooling and education. And that's number one. The second part, though, is it is a launching pad for careers, because many of the times, an interest in esports and such translates into an interest in different elements in STEM. It, uh, whether that be in kind of more of the computer science side of things, engineering, uh, you have it. Uh, I've had students of every walk of life and um, degree come through my programs, and I think that's that's the larger, most important part of it when we're talking about esports at a collegiate level and getting scholarships. It is a launching pad for careers. And it's a chance for keeping students engaged in the community and campus that they might otherwise not have been a part of. Uh, without esports,
0: take me through what it is like for a spectator or a coach. Say it's Ohio State. I don't know against Purdue University. I don't know if they have an esports team, but let's say it's a com- a, a competition. What does it sound like and look like for a spectator?
5: Well, uh, it, it looks very similar to a broadcast you might see on television for a basketball game. So we do have casters and such and broadcasters that shout cast the matches, they talk about the plays that are happening during it, they give color commentary about the players and the larger programs. And uh, when you're in person, I've been to a lot of esports events, not only because before I was at Henderson, I also worked in the professional scene of esports. And when you're at one of these large events, uh, like uh, an example that sells out every year is League of Legends has this big world championship series that happens and they sell, sold out the Staples Center in like 30 seconds when they were doing this uh, previously and when you go to these different events you, you have a huge crowd of people that are cheering on uh, what's happening uh, and it, it's really amazing to see just how exciting fans can get uh, about seeing some of their favorite players play these games that oftentimes they themselves play in their spare time after work with friends that they might have known for years or met just through playing the game itself. And there's a lot of passion in it. It's uh, very exciting. And it can sometimes be hard to get into if you haven't seen or watched the games before, but that's one of the great things about it. There's such a huge, large community in some of these areas that allow anyone that's interested in it to learn and be able to kind of see why people are so excited about it.
0: Now I know there's going to be the gamers at the capital, uh, at the state capitol in Arkansas. You'll be there. What kind of questions do you expect you might get from lawmakers or policy people who are at the capitol and want to know about esports?
5: I, I think there might be some. There's uh, examples like what should the role be of government uh, in esports, or how government should interact with esports, as well as the education aspect of like what, uh, how much should we allow esports in larger education, or some probably questions I, I'm expecting to hear because it, it's a legitimate question. This is an area that is still very untested and uh, just not well represented yet on the larger stage um, in the mainstream, so to speak. And so, I, honestly, when I'll be there and uh, for the event, I, it's going to be much more informational than anything else, I think, because it is still a very new thing. And while there have been a lot of programs and it's still rapidly growing and there's a lot of excitement, at the end of the day, uh, questions that I think for any activity are going to still need to be answered. And I think th- these are some of the first steps we're really seeing of esports really emerge on the main stage. Uh, in a way that people can recognize and see more often because it's still, it's still in its infancy. The first collegiate program was only founded about nine years ago. Uh, so it's, uh, it's not exactly, uh, it's not exactly has a long legacy yet.
0: Dr. John Price is the esports manager at The Ohio State University and a former esports program director at Henderson State University in Arkadelphia. He'll be among the esports advocates at the state capitol in Little Rock tomorrow. The Alma Education and Arts Foundation presents Cross That River at the Skokas Performing Arts Center, February 25th at 7.30 p.m. Cross That River is based on real history in which black cowboys lived and helped settle the West and takes audiences on a musical journey into why black lives matter. Tickets at 479-632-2129
1: or SkokusPAC.org. Sunday night's Grammy Awards honored several musicians who have played in northwest Arkansas.
0: Samara Joy, who was at the Walton Arts Center in Fayetteville in December 2021, won Best New Artist and Best Jazz Vocal Album.
3: this feeling just can't get out of this mood Last
1: Taylor Swift you've probably heard of her <laughs> she played at Clap Auditorium on Mount Sequoia early in her career won the Grammy for best music video Willie Nelson, who has played at the Amp, Barnhill, Private Parties, The Odd, New Eureka Springs, Walton Arts Center, and probably 20 other area venues, was honored for Best Country Solo Performance and Best Country Album. Brandy Carlisle, who was at the Amp
0: last summer, was a co winner for writing the winner for. Best Rock Song, and won another Grammy for her performance of the song and another for Best Americana Album. Kirk Franklin was at the Amp last summer. He won Grammys for Best Gospel Album, Best Gospel Performance, and Contemporary Christian Music Performance.
1: The Best Bluegrass Album went to Molly Tuttle, who played at the Fayetteville Public Library last August as part of the Fayetteville Roots Festival.
0: Ashley McBride, who won a Grammy with Carly Pearce for Best Country Duo Performance, played in 2015 in our very own Furman Garner Performance Studio. Ashley spoke with Christina Karnatz in July
3: 2015. Well, you are a, a singer-songwriter. Yes. And I feel like um, you know, there's a singer-songwriter station on Pandora. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of this stereotype of, yeah. oh, of yeah. a singer-songwriter. Yeah. How do you... I should probably
6: be in a sundress and uh, calf-high boots and a floppy hat right now. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm in tattoos yeah.
3: and jeans and areas. <laughs> you just mentioned your image. You know, it's a little bit different maybe. Mm-hmm. But how do you um, make sure that your songs aren't... The, the stereotypical I'm not saying that they are they're not well and,
6: and we're all different but there's a yeah. reason there's a stereotype mm-hmm. and there's a reason people roll their eyes and go oh, when they hear there's a, a female singer songwriter coming in right because they automatically go to this really awful image of a very tiny small meek person who sits and plays at a guitar instead of a girl who comes in and whacks the house down with a J45 you know all you can do is write what you know and write what's in you. And if that's what people like, fantastic. And if it's not, then you'll get better at it because I wasn't always better <laughs> at it. <laughs> and, uh, and when you're when you're on your way up, there's a lot of really understanding people. And there's a lot of people that will um, heckle, which you feel awful at the time. Uh, and you learn how to handle that, and you learn how to avoid it, and you learn how to hand it back to them, and you learn how to make your show better. Uh, so it's, it's hard to... to be a female singer-songwriter and not be Joan Baez, because there's only one Joan Baez and one Joni Mitchell. Um, But for every, oh, come on, you're a chick playing guitar, uh, for every person who's ever said that, your show gets better. And if it doesn't, then you're in the wrong business.
3: Well, your um, bio on your Facebook and your website mm-hmm. uh, mention your whiskey humor. Yes. You know, I mean, that. I just assume that that's something you probably use in in front Absolutely. of a crowd. But what do you mean by whiskey humor?
6: I am a bourbon enthusiast. Um, Me too. <laughs> I love everything about it, the culture, the history behind it, uh, and the actual beverage. Uh, I don't know when I got dubbed as a whiskey wash sense of humor, but um, I do say a lot of under my breath, things into the microphone, and if you're at the front of the room, you can hear it. Like, I'll introduce a in song and say, well, I would tell you the song's about whiskey, but they all are. And then, you know, and then everybody kind of giggles about that. And I just kind of have a, a gruff thing, not that I'm not a nice person, but I, I have this uh, just a little bit burny, rough sense of humor. It still goes down nicely.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Well, because I also like whiskey, can will you, will you play a song for us that's uh, yeah. maybe a whiskey-inspired song? Or? Absolutely. <laughs> well, literally, they, they all
6: are. Have you ever had Elijah Craig? No. It is um, it's the top shelf from the Heaven Hill Distillery. It comes in a 12-year and 18, uh, 21, and I think a 23. And when I first tasted Elijah Craig, I was a Coors Light drinker. And I tasted Elijah Craig, and I haven't gone back to drinking— uh, year since. Um, and the product tasted really good, but the story behind it was even better because this man, Elijah Craig, was a preacher from Virginia who had moved to Kentucky and made his living preaching, but he also distilled spirits. And of course the church disagreed with that and they still to this day won't admit it, but they burned down his barrel house where he kept all the barrels. And at the time whiskey was kept in white oak. And he had spent all of his money on these barrels and they were all burnt. And so he went ahead and put his product in it, in these charred oak barrels, and it came out an amber color and tasted better than everything else on the market. And he's called the father of bourbon. Well, half the county loved him, and half the county judged him. Everybody knew Elijah Craig He was handing out salvation It was there for the taking The sermon and the bourbon And they were hallelujah made Elijah
1: That was Grammy Award winner Ashley McBride with former Ozarks at Large reporter and producer Christina Karnatz in July 2015 in the Furman Garner Performance Studio. Also winning a Grammy Sunday with Furman Garner Performance Studio experience, time for three. They earned the award for classical instrumental solo and were just at Walton Arts Center this winter.
0: Meanwhile, two performers who played in Fayetteville in recent months were big winners at the annual International Folk Music Awards in Kansas City.
1: Molly Tuttle won Album of the Year for Crooked Tree and Anais Mitchell, who also played in Fayetteville in 2022 as a guest of Fayetteville Roots, won the Song of the Year Award for Bright Star.
7: Upon you. I was filled with such a longing to be with you in the dark. Bright star. Since I could not fly beside you, I would chart my own course by you, and I'd sail it by
1: you. This is Ozarks at Large. The band National Park Radio spends a lot of time touring out west. Though they are from Arkansas and still live here, they mostly reserve their local gigs for special occasions like Past concerts held at Steel Creek and Tyler Bend on the Buffalo River.
0: Touring out west served as inspiration, though. Despite the band taking a COVID-enforced hiatus from touring for more than a year, they hit the road again in 2021. And in 2022, they recorded a new album. The effort, titled Canyons, will be released in its entirety later in the spring. Those singles from the record are being released on a staggered basis leading up to the full album release in May. Recently, Stefan and Carrie Zosbo stopped by the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio to catch up with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis.
8: One of the hardest things when producing a record for me is on my own or just at home with Carrie and our other bandmates that were involved like the decision-making and like creative decision-making to me is like one of the hardest parts. Like there's so many options you can go with, like how to play a part, what type of instrument to play. We just, when we're, when I have a producer, he was able to like have a lot of good experience and input to kind of help us make those decisions. Even though like his style was different than our style but we kind of met in a cool spot in the middle. I think he leans towards more indie rock type stuff. And we wanted to go a little bit in that direction, but we wanted to still keep in some of our indie folk vibes. So it was a little bit of a challenge going back and forth. I'm like, well, we want some banjo in there. And he's like, <laughs> he wasn't thinking banjo, but, you know, we were thinking banjo. Yeah, so things like that was was challenging. But um, I think we settled on a, on a really cool, like, Balance between like indie folk, indie rock, folk pop. I, I don't know how. Yeah. What, no,
9: it's going to become even harder when people say, "What style of music are you?" It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. really going to be like. We That's don't
8: always know. a fun question. We don't know. <laughs> I think indie folk <laughs> encompasses
10: so much. So yeah. I think you that's what anytime we stay you with. throw
9: indie in front of anything, yeah. just mm. indie and then anything.
10: I mean, if it you works. want to make it even broader, you <laughs> could always go indie americana. Yeah,
9: here we go. Yeah,
8: yeah. <laughs> I, I end up saying different things at different times. If I depending on who I'm talking to, if I think they're more into americana or country music, I might say americana. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I think
10: they're more into rock, I might say like indie folk or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Folk rock. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, some of your previous efforts they've sonically kind of ranged from more of the folk to bigger productions that have a full band, piano, drums, the whole nine yards. Where does this album, Canyons, fall on that spectrum?
8: Bigger. The biggest, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We were able to work with some awesome musicians in Nashville. So we brought in a really great drummer, bass player, electric guitar slash pedal steel player, a really amazing keys player, and we had a few tracks with some great strings, uh, cellist and violin, and also a little bit of banjo. And, uh, uh, of course, acoustic guitar is kind of the bass layer. Mm. And then I did most of the banjo as well. But, you know, with our music, and we told our producer this before we, we made the record, I made sure that, like, the songwriting, the vocals, those are pretty much why people like our music and our songs. Our lyrics are kind of full of, like, just really simple but, like, full of heart and, like, simple life meanings that you know and reflections that come up when i reflect on life and so i think a lot of people relate to that and that's what for the most part draws into our music it's not the crazy guitar solos or really amazing you know instrumentation or or instrumentals it's the songwriting and the in the singing and so we wanted to make sure to not mess that up and focus on that and let everything kind of lift that up and and uh, support it
7: on Jenny The water's cold and clear She's stolen hearts aplenty But some found this here Now I'll be Snow that will last
10: So you mentioned that y'all tour out west quite a bit and you've made that loop from here to California and back quite a few times. So many
7: times.
10: Did that drive or the places that you've encountered on that drive kind of inform the songs on this record? Yeah. Uh,
8: A lot. I think if you even look at the, the title of it, it's called Canyons. I mean... I don't know if we technically have any canyons here in Arkansas, but the canyons that are kind of referenced, I mean, it's its a little bit, the song Canyons on the record is, a, is kind of a metaphor, but definitely the visual inspiration that I get when I think of it is like the canyons in, in New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and we've spent a lot of time out in those areas just like in awe of of some of the places that that we get to see. But you know, aside from that, there's also you know our first track, Wander, it mentions like going out to like the Tetons and and coming back to Arkansas and just kind of a lot of things, just that kind of reference. Some of the places we've been and enjoyed. There's a song called New Mexico. That's kind of it's kind of a love or lost love song, but like it still is in the setting of like a desert night sky somewhere in New Mexico.
9: There's a song about California oh, yeah. in there too, yeah.
8: though. Definitely references to California. We're
9: yeah. gonna get every state eventually. Yeah. No, we did at one point though. Like listening back, be like, oh, oops, we mentioned a lot of states. Yeah.
8: <laughs> the, the cool thing about doing that is then when you go to those places and
10: mention their place that you're playing to them in, they cheer. They get real
9: excited. And they're really excited. Right
10: with it. Right. <laughs> the album art. Uh, features a canyon. Was that based on a specific place, or is it more of like an abstract canyon?
9: Yeah, so I did all all of the album art, and like all the hand-drew, everything, the whole inside spread, all of it. So I would say it is definitely just based on all these desert canyons that are just so fun to mm. see and explore, and they feel like these secret little hidden worlds. And I definitely... One of the best things in life is somehow just, like, standing in the desert at night is incredible. I don't know, just, like, the silence and just the feeling. And so the cover is not necessarily a specific place, but it is a specific feeling,
8: I feel like. I think we got the inspiration from some of, like, the slot Canyon type of places, like, out Mm -hmm. in Arizona and and Utah and stuff. Like, yeah, I see, like— If you look at the cover, it's like the entrance to a canyon and it's kind of illuminated by maybe like a campfire that's just back in their ways and the night sky above it. So he
9: he basically said, this is what I – because I draw and he doesn't really draw. And so I get a lot of the people who draw probably get a lot of this as well. Somebody else with their vision being like, this is what it looks like. Now make that. (laughs) And so I did my best on that. And then – but then i was like but i'm going rogue on the inside don't tell me what to do
8: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. i just
9: did what i wanted on the inside so
8: yeah timothy hasn't you haven't seen the inside yet but it's like a depiction of a arches national park i think it with does. like a raven kind of looking and like the night sky is, and a big but moon i would say
9: there's a ton the most meaning we've ever put on any album art is probably inside that picture and most people are not going to get it. It's a
8: lot of, like, <laughs> so, she, she loves Native yeah. American, like, culture, yes, and so, so there's a lot of kind the, of references. The Native
9: American folktale of the raven being the creator of, you know, all light. So the moon right. and the stars and everything on there is specific to being from that land down to the colors in it mm. are actually pulled from the Native American pottery from that region.
10: Well, y'all are releasing this album soon, but you're doing it in a little bit of a different way, right? You know, we're, we're
8: independent at this point still. We have a booking agent, but aside from that, we're like doing our own thing. And so other musicians could probably relate, but like releasing music online, it's just constantly changing and evolving. We feel like just the best way to be able to like showcase each song, make sure nothing gets kind of neglected in my mind like we just kind of put out one song at a time until it culminates into like just a full record release and it also gives us a lot of good opportunities to kind of promote different aspects of the record with these different songs that I feel like you know they all deserve at least some spotlight at some point and so when we release a whole record at one time without that I always notice that like the second half of the album just fades out, and and not a lot of people get to experience a lot of those because of just the nature of of the way we listen to music nowadays with Spotify and all this on-demand thing. So we released one song on January 2nd, A Wander. It's a really great song about, in my opinion, about (laughs) traveling and appreciating where you're from and appreciating the moments in our lives rather than all this other extra stuff. But we just released the second track, which is called Long, Long Night.
7: I'm moving on Is the last thing that you said And she ain't wrong Lord, I know that This might be the end If you hear our song Oh, I hope you don't forget And when I'm gone What if I can't keep you from my head What will I do? Cause it's gonna be a long, long Long time till I'm back in Carolina. Don't you know that California calls my name? And it's gonna be a long, long night down in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I know it's only been one day, but I'm not alright. Westbound 40. Through Fort Smith, Arkansas. The road is lonely, load is heavy. When you got no one at all, maybe I should turn back. Before it's too late, before I lose. The only thing that I cannot replace, what should I do? Cause it's gonna be a long, long time till I'm back. Carolina, don't you know that California calls my name. and it's gonna be a long on Valentine's Day
8: we're going to release a really cool duet between me and Carrie it's kind of a love song and yeah every two weeks every other Monday after that it's gonna be release day and we're just kind of be able to showcase each song as it comes out and uh, it'll culminate into the kind of full final release um, sometime in May
10: in my research this morning I realized This is 10 years since you released the first National Park Radio EP. Do you ever sit back and think about that you've been doing it for 10 years, like writing songs under this band name and you're still at it? I did think about that. Then then I think about,
8: I read stories about bands who are like, You know, the tenure mark is a big deal. A lot of bands play and are out for, you know, 10, 12 years. Then they start actually doing things in the industry. So we're just kind of growing up. You know, we've evolved so much in the past 10 years. Carrie wasn't even a part of the band until 2017. And so we're just kind of, I still feel like this is a new experience and we're always just constantly changing and evolving. And it's honestly, I think this is the best thing we've done yet. And there's definitely more to come down the road. But yeah, I do reflect on that 10 years.
7: And like, I'm it,
9: it is hard to not, and I would think anybody who's doing this or anything creative for so long could look at it and think like, oh my gosh, 10 years and this is where we're at. You know, and there are moments where you have that when you're exhausted and you're working very hard and you're. Sleeping in a Walmart parking lot again. But then you also look at it. We have no interest in fame as the definition would put it. There's no goal in the fame aspect of it for Mm us. Very little interest in that. And so when you're not focused on necessarily that, then it's like, well, then so what? What are the years? You know, like they, they don't mean much whenever you look at it like that. Because, you know, we go and we play these shows it's really unbelievable the messages and even just the people in person who come up to us and they'll be crying, you know, which I will admittedly tell you, I do not handle well. (laughs) So I usually pass them to Stefan and be like, Oh, (laughs) take this person, you know, because like they've been so emotionally touched and it's done something like bigger than we could ever imagine in these people's lives. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with just messages Mm -hmm. we get and stuff like that. So whenever you do get a little down thinking, oh, 10 years of this, you know, it is really easy to then come back to reality and be like, those years don't even matter really because of the impact that we're making Uh to all these people. This just doesn't matter.
8: It's incredible to hear from people that one of our songs has helped them get out of deep depression or been like the soundtrack to their relationship that they're about to get married and going to use our song as their first dance. Or any number of different situations that just make us feel like our music has been a part of somebody's life in a very meaningful way and without us really knowing it. And but to hear it, it just kind of confirms, like, oh, we are making a difference in at least some people's lives. And that's kind of the yeah. point of it for us is just to like Another, be a positive part of. I think of there the world. always
9: was a little bit too of a hidden agenda with this whole thing. We get to travel so <laughs> oh, much. Yeah. Our kids are oh, homeschooled, yeah. they travel with us. So they've gone on. Pretty much every single adventure, we take moments in between the tours to just camp in the Tetons for a few days before mm. shows, things like that. So we are still able to make the fun in the adventures and stuff.
10: So you've got the record coming out over the next few months. What else do you have in store for 2023? Just a lot of touring, playing shows and... Um... We are just currently in the
8: planning mode for for 2023 and beyond. For all that, we have a local Northwest Arkansas show coming up with the Home Sweet Home Festival. On April 28th and 29th, you can go to citysessions.org to find out more information and get tickets. But it's a really cool hometown festival. They bring in touring acts, really great names like Penny and Sparrow, Joshua James, We'll be doing two nights on April 28th and 29th for that festival. So go check that out. And more Northwest Arkansas stuff to come, I'm sure, later in the year.
0: That was Stefan and Carrie Zosbo of the band National Park Radio. They recently spoke with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. Two singles from their latest album, Canyons, have been
1: released. You can find Wander and Long, Long Night on your streaming music platform of choice. And the next single drops Tuesday on Valentine's Day. You can keep up with them on social media or at npr.band. This
0: is 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Fort Smith, Rogers, and Sugar Grove. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media
1: at the University of Arkansas. Not to be confused with Sugar Loaf. This one's in Logan County. Contributors today included Timothy Dennis and courtesy of the Wayback Machine, Christina carnets
0: Additional content today provided by the newsroom at K U A R in Little Rock. Matthew produced the show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks so much for listening. Back with you again tomorrow.